The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. We're going to start a brand new series this week, uh, and I am thoroughly excited about it. It's called Parables. And so for 13 weeks, we're going to be studying the simple stories that Jesus told to communicate deep and beautiful and sometimes difficult truths. A very famous thing that Jesus did teaching in parables. And so um, we're going to stick primarily in the Gospel of Luke and just kind of chronologically, we we may jump a little bit, but really what we're going to do is kind of plow through Luke um, and take parable by parable and just see what it is the Lord would have to say to us through those, okay? It's going to be really fun. I'm excited about it. I like Jesus. So I'm excited about studying what he had to say. Am I alone in that? I got some, got some brothers and sisters and witnesses. Okay, good. That's what we're going to do together. Uh, the first question that comes up uh, for a thinking person is, why did Jesus teach in parables? I think that's a good question. I also believe there's really uh, two answers, maybe more, but two primary answers. Uh, in Matthew 13, the disciples ask Jesus this very question. Um, and his answer to them is that really what the parables are doing is it's dividing the crowds. Some people who are truly hungry for the truth will understand or they will keep seeking to understand the meanings of the parables. Some who are hard-hearted will walk away in pride, deciding that Jesus is rambling about nothing. Can you see that? So somebody that has really begun to have affection for Jesus, they hear him talking about sowers and seeds and coins being lost and sheep and they're they're like, I was coming to this guy to hear about something deep and spiritual, right? Like, what, what, is, what is this guy giving me farm analogies for? You're going to have two responses to that. The person that trusts Jesus and loves Jesus is going to want to push in to figure out, okay, what's he really saying? The person that imagines themselves smarter than Jesus is going to say, this is the ramblings of, of, of an idiot, and they're going to walk away from him. Uh, I, I think that this explains Jesus' words in Matthew 13, verse 12. Here's what he says. Whoever has... And this is also in the context of answering the question about the parables, okay? So it's absolutely uh, applicable. He says this, Whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. So they who have love for God and some understanding of his kingdom, more of both of those are going to be given to them by the parables. To they who have neither of those things, neither love for God, or any understanding of his kingdom, the parables will lead to further hardening of their heart and distance from God and eventual loss of everything. Does that make sense? Said another way, those who love Jesus will be helped by the Holy Spirit to benefit from the beautiful simplicity of the parables. Those who reject and despise him will only be further confused by the same beautiful simplicity. Do you see that? Some of you may feel that this sounds unfair. Some of you will not like the statement, to he who has more, to he who has more will be given, to he who doesn't, all will be taken away. Some of you don't like that because that sounds like a reverse Robin Hood, kind of corporate greed type of deal. You're ready to go occupy Wall Street on Jesus. What's he talking about? We're going to take away from those who already don't have and, and those who do have, we're going to give them more. That doesn't really sound right because we like Robin Hood here in America. Sometimes we don't like Jesus. But um, if that feels like injustice to you, I would encourage you to think about the parables the same way that the Puritans thought about the gospel. They were fond of saying this, 
The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. Two people could be sitting next to each other and hear the same gospel preached. One heart could be softened and receive that message joyfully, by faith. The other could be hardened further and hate God even more. Two people sitting could hear the same exact words. Two people could be sitting in this room today. One hear a beautiful invitation to trust Jesus by faith and his finished work, and their heart could be softened by that gospel. The person sitting next to them could be infuriated by that and hate God even more because of their rejection of his mercy. Do you see that? That's why it's not unfair. Some will receive, some will reject. That's an unfortunate truth. Uh, I don't have a scripture for this, so it's definitely uh, an open-handed, kind of take-it-or-leave-it type of comment. You can do what you want. But I believe another reason Jesus taught in ways that would potentially confuse and further infuriate his critics is the same reason that he often did miracles and told people not to tell anyone about it. Have you ever noticed that? Reading the Gospels, Jesus would do something incredible and say, don't tell anybody. You'd be like, that's kind of weird. Um, Jesus was mission-minded. Here's why I believe he did both of those things. Jesus was mission-minded. He knew that the Father had sent him to die in our place for our sins, and there were going to be evil men who hated him that would be a part of that process. Jesus revealed his glorious identity to enough people so that they could launch and build his church after he rose from the grave and ascended into heaven. But because he wasn't concerned with his own fame or popularity, he was able to keep a low enough profile for there to be a crowd who didn't love him on that day of all days and so that they would bind him and beat him and crucify him. Does that make sense to you? I think that's true. Let's read together Luke 5, uh, starting in verse 27. We're going to read to uh, verse 39. After that, he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. Levi gave a big reception for him in his house, and there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call those who are righteous but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, the disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same. But yours eat and drink? And Jesus said to them, you cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But the days will come, and when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. And he was also telling them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise he will Both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. But the new wine must be put into fresh wine skins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new. For he says, the old is good enough. There's a lot going on there. Um, If it's your first time at Love City tonight... um, I've been building up grace points on sermon time because I've been doing really good lately. I don't know what's going to happen tonight, okay? This was hard for me. There's a lot in here, and it's super exciting, and 
I am a Jesus guy, so I'm just apologizing in advance. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm going to do my best to get you out of here, you know, so that you don't starve to death. But the other thing I figure I had working for me is, if you showed up on Labor Day weekend, like, you already have to be an all-star, you know, super committed Christian, because um, Labor Day weekend is one of those times when you can easily, you know, kind of, oh, well, you know, I had potato salad to make, or I know I'm going to a cookout Monday, and I'm going to eat a lot. I want to be rested for that. So um, Sunday night gathering with God's people will probably be too much. Um, so... If you're here, I just figured you're already super amped about Jesus, the gospel, and his word, and so we're just ready to go, right? You good with that? Okay. You can, you'll have time to make potato salad in the morning, I promise. Okay, so uh, as far as these scriptures are f- concerned, let's get the first crazy potential interpretation out of the way, okay? You ready for that? Uh, some of you are instantly going to say, I looked up wineskins and what those were, and they were made from the skin of a whole animal. And that was a ton of wine, and Jesus didn't say it was bad. Okay? I'm with you. True. Some wineskins were made even out of uh, ox hide. So essentially, they chopped the legs and head off of an ox, sew the thing up, and that's what held the wine. Um, And so 50 gallons upwards of could be held in a wineskin like that. Some of you don't really have a context for that. Go downstairs and look at your water heater. That's roughly 40 to 50 gallons. It's a lot, okay? Okay. but what that does not mean is that one person would drink all of the contents of that wineskin. Okay? That was a good try. Um, some of you read this verse, and what you get out of it is that you should go get a new margarita poured in a new glass, so big that you can get in there and like swim around in it, uh, and then you should drink it really quick before it gets old. That is not the proper way to exegete this passage of Scripture. Okay? Um, I thought that you would laugh more about that than you did. Is everyone just uncomfortable because you think I'm about to hammer you about alcohol? I mean, you're right. I'm going to, so get ready. It's going to be fun. But um, <laughs> that, was, that was rough. That was rough. Okay. It's good. I'm learning. Um, so that's, that's not really a good way to, uh, to look at this passage of Scripture. It's a good example, however, of what happens when you don't take into account the context and original intent of a passage. If what we do is read a few verses and make it mean whatever helps us feel better about what we're already doing, uh, there's no end to the heretical garbage that can flow from an approach like that to the Bible. Does that make sense? Okay. So if nothing else, I didn't get you to laugh, but I showed you how to not uh, interpret the scriptures, okay? Uh, Now, since you guys brought this up, and it's been a while since we've addressed it, Uh, and a lot of people have met Jesus recently and may not know what to think about it, I will briefly address our position on alcohol, okay? (laughs) It's impossible to justify a completely prohibitive position on alcohol from the Bible. Okay, some of you are already ticked off. Good. Let's keep going. This will be fun. However, it is obvious from many scriptures that being drunk is clearly a sin. Like Ephesians 5.18, for example, which says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. That word means overindulgence, uh, if that's not something you use in your everyday language. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. You get the sense from that verse that those are mutually exclusive. That if you're drunk with wine, you're not going to be filled with the Spirit. Okay? Um, And if you've been drunk before, you probably, and you're being honest, you know that that's true. The Spirit of God's not normally in the driver's seat. You know, once uh, Jim Beam and Jose Cuervo have jumped in the car to ride with you, right? (laughs) Um, see, that got a laugh? I mean, <laughs> you guys are hard to figure out. Um, 
So Ephesians 5.18, I could, I could give you, you know, 20 more. Um, if you don't believe me, go look. There's lots of times the Bible says don't get drunk, okay? But defining drunk is where this can become a slippery slope. Um, I knew a guy that would have a friend punch him in the top of the head, and if he could still feel it, he was not drunk, okay? That was the drunk test. Uh, some people believe they weren't drunk as long as they remember it. If I remembered it, I wasn't drunk, right? Well... I'm not sure these are the best standards, and I believe it's simpler than we make it. Uh, the reality is, if you are acting differently than you normally would, if you are thinking differently than you normally would, if you're laughing at things you normally wouldn't, or any part of your conscience or character is altered, then you are not the same as when you are sober. So what are you? Creating the mythical middle ground called buzzed is not an honest approach to the question. You're either sober, the way you always are, or you've consumed enough alcohol where you are different than normal. Drunk. Okay? Nobody's left yet. Now, this is our position at Love City, as far as Christians and alcohol. Some of you will choose to never touch alcohol because you don't believe that navigating the minefield of ways it can lead you into sin is worth it. For that, you are wise. Some of you will choose to partake in small amounts of alcohol, not getting drunk, and being careful not to cause a stumbling block to others. You are wise. Some of you will be careless with alcohol and drink to excess, and it will lead you into sins of all sorts and kinds, and it will cause unneeded pain in your life and probably in the life of others. That is very unwise. Okay? There's three options of what you're going to do with alcohol, uh, and those are our positions on it. Now, some of you have very strong opinions about alcohol, and I realize for some of you that it is because you've experienced firsthand the destructive potential it has in people's lives. And you may not like that I just said a Christian could drink without getting drunk and not be in sin. I understand you may have a visceral response based on your perspective, which is informed by your experience. I totally get that, I promise you. And I promise you, I have firsthand experience of the destructive nature of alcohol in the lives of people. Okay? Please don't think that this comes from naivety. But before you email me to voice your disgust at my liberal viewpoint, I would ask you to please go read Romans 14. There you will find that Paul places alcohol along with some other things in the realm of conscience. And he tells us some will be tempted to judge others because they do partake, assuming they are too liberal. Some will be tempted to judge others who don't partake, assuming they are weak in mind or conscience. I believe judging somebody harshly because their conscience is different than yours on this subject can cause way more damage to God's people and God's mission than somebody drinking a glass of wine ever could. Did you catch all that? Because it's important. What were the guys giving Jesus a hard time for in Luke 5? We just read it. Being at a party with people they considered unsavory. They felt better than those people because of the rules they kept. And what did Jesus say to them? It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I'm going to tell you guys something right now, and I want you to listen to me very carefully because I seriously mean this. I would rather be a humble whore than a prideful pastor. I believe a humble whore is much closer to God's heart than a prideful pastor. And I need you to be careful how you think about this subject. No matter which side of it you stand on. 
It would be better for you to be the drunken tax collector in Luke 5 than the Pharisee. Do you see that? It would be best to be neither for sure. But if you have to pick one, you never want to be on Team Pharisee. Go through the Gospels. Who did Jesus hammer the best? Wasn't people caught in adultery. Wasn't people struggling with addictions. It was those who thought they had it all figured out. And they were better than everyone else because of it. Jesus said stuff to those guys like, you brood of vipers, how are you going to escape hell? You're a bunch of whitewashed tombs filled with dead men's bones. I'd rather be found with the, the adulteress stooped down, bawling in the dirt. She was given a command to go and sin more, no more, but she, was, she saw the compassionate side of Jesus. I don't want to be standing on the team that Jesus is saying stuff like, how are you going to escape hell? Don't be a Pharisee, dear one. Especially not about this, because this subject has the potential to divide. This subject has the, the potential to draw out enough of a visceral response that you could disregard this very clear caution that I'm trying to give you as your pastor because I love you and the word would give us clearly because Jesus loves us. Don't be a Pharisee about this, okay? People can walk out different levels of conscience when it comes to liberties, uh, Christian liberties in particular, um, and not be in sin. Somebody can do something different than you do and not be in sin, okay? You all right with that? You happy about it? Good. This is the last thing I'll say on this subject, and then we're going to move on. If you have a proven track record of addictive tendencies, you are very likely in the group who would be wisest to never touch alcohol. Many greater men than any of us in this room have been enslaved by it, and this should be a factor as you determine whether it's worth the trouble. Okay? I love you. Was that fun? That was fun. Good. Um, let's get back to these verses. Other folks have understood these verses to mean uh, different things. Uh, some believe the new wine spoken of here is the Holy Spirit and that the old wineskins are unbelievers so that we must become new wineskins by becoming Christians and then we can be filled with the new wine, which is the Holy Spirit. Uh, and though some of the imagery may fit, uh, this understanding does not really fit into the context of the passage. So what we see here is Jesus responding to the criticism of some of the Pharisees about why his disciples aren't fasting and praying instead of eating a meal with sinners, right? So they're walking up and saying, John's guys fast and pray, our guys fast and pray, and here your guys are at a party with the tax collectors. What's up with that, Jesus? Um, and I just want to give you one point of application here at this point. Um, most of us here are nowhere near a danger of overstudying the Bible. So let me make that point clear, Okay. Most of us, that's not our problem. Uh, but I have known people in the past who will attend five church services a week, pray two hours a day, read their Bible two hours a day, and are part of four book studies in addition throughout the week, but they clam up and get the sweats whenever they think about sharing the gospel with a dirty old sinner. The book of James says that faith without works is dead. Just a thought. Let's move on, because you didn't like that. So we see Jesus responding to criticism uh, with this parable about new cloth and old garments and new wine and old wineskins. So we have to, that's what context is about. That's how we understand really what's going on in a passage. That's how we don't end up thinking what this is about is Jesus saying lots of alcohol is great, right? Because if all you did was came down towards the end, like 37 through 39, you could say, well, Jesus is advocating for big old jugs of alcohol. I'm on that train. 
yes, never knew I'd like the Bible this much, right? But you have to go before that and figure out the context because that tells you then what's going on. What is Jesus really speaking to uh, when he's giving us this parable? Because you could make that parable mean a lot of things, right? You could take that in there and twist it, and people do. So we have to be careful, try to figure out, first of all, what did Jesus mean? That's what matters most, not, what does this say to me, right? That, <laughs> Listen, I, <laughs> the Bible can't apply at different times to different people, and that's beautiful. This is a living word, and so it will grow with you. And I promise you, I've read scriptures this month that maybe I read 10 years ago, and they've, they've helped me and applied to me differently because I'm 10 years further in my journey with Jesus. But that doesn't mean I go to the scriptures and I'm looking to give the scriptures what they are from my personal experience. That's not how we look at the Bible. That's called eisegesis. That means I'm adding into the scriptures. I'm bringing my perspective to define what they mean. Exegesis means I'm going into the scriptures to figure out what is it the original intent was. What am I supposed to understand from this? And that's really the humble way to approach the scriptures. Um, so Jesus first gives us um, the example of new cloth being sewed onto an old garment. And we know the issue here is not really old and new. It's shrunk and not. Um, has anybody here ever bought something that fit amazing at the store, and then you bring it home, and you wash it one time, and then you put it on, and it looks like a hippo tried to squeeze into a leotard? <laughs> anybody ever had that experience? Yeah. Um, Throughout my life, I've struggled with tipping towards the husky side, so maybe some of you that are ultra-skinny, high metabolism that the rest of us hate don't know what I'm talking about, but some of us have bought things at the store before, come home and washed it, and then um, it didn't fit anymore, and that's a real bummer, because then you can't return it if you have integrity. Ooh, that burned, didn't it? Um, so, um, yeah, so we see that he's talking about shrunk and unshrunk cloth. Um, new cloth shrinks, and so if you had a hole in something, something that had already been washed many times, something old, uh, and it had already sunk, and you sewed a piece over that hole that was not shrunk, what would happen is when you washed it, that new cloth is going to shrink, and so it's going to pull on those stitches you used to connect it, and what you're going to see is that old garment is going to be more brittle than the new cloth, and so what's going to happen is those stitches are just they are going to tear right through it, and they're going to destroy and make a bigger hole in that old garment, messing up both and making them both useless. Uh, he then talks about not putting new wine into old wineskins. And the wineskins were made from animal skin, um, which when, 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 when they were new, they would be uh, stretchy and pliable. Uh, so the new wine, when it was being put in there, it would still have some fermenting to do. When it was put in to be stored, it wouldn't be quite done with that process. And so part of what happens in fermenting is that gas is created um, in, in that fermentation process. And so what would happen is those new wineskins still being made from kind of fresh skin, they would have the ability to be pliable and expand with that fermentation process. <coughs> Excuse me. But an old or used wine skin would be stiff and brittle. It would already have gone through that expansion process. It would have no room left to grow with the new wine, and thus it would burst, ruining both. In his commentary on Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, John Calvin states that the old wineskins and the old garment represent Jesus' disciples. And the new wine and unshrunk cloth represents the practice of fasting twice a week. Fasting this way would be burdensome to the new disciples. It would be more than they could bear. Uh, I believe that Calvin's observation is correct, but a little limited in its scope. Um, and contrary to what some of you may believe, that wasn't just me trying to get the Calvin fanboys riled up. Um, 
I don't think he totally caught everything <laughs> that was being said here. I believe Jesus is commenting on more than just the specific question of fasting. Here he is telling them that the new wine of the new covenant, based on grace through faith in Christ alone, could not be contained within the rigid law-based system of the old covenant. Jesus was telling them that the days of trying to please God and earn his love through obedience to rules and traditions, especially those created by men, was coming to an end. And that if you tried to contain the coming covenant of grace and freedom in the old wineskin of religion and rules, it would blow it wide open. This parable teaches a principle that we hold very high here at Love City. That Jesus plus anything ruins everything. Jesus is telling these guys they're not going to be able to keep their hypocritical and man-made religious traditions and try to just add the cross to them. It won't work. They would have to understand that Jesus coming and living a perfect sinless life, dying as our substitute and paying the penalty of sin for all mankind and then rising triumphantly as Lord, Master, and King over death and eternity was the fulfillment of the law. This new wine couldn't be put in an old wineskin. This new cloth couldn't just be sewed onto the old as an addition or addendum to the current system. Jesus came to make all things new. And that's exactly what he did. And I'm happy about it. Now we could get real sassy and we could say how dumb these Pharisees were for challenging Jesus like this. But in reality, don't we do this all the time? We have the benefit of the whole New Testament. So we get to see it all play out and we understand that Jesus was, what Jesus was up to. And these guys were having their whole world turned upside down. I mean, I'm not trying to be on Team Pharisee. I'm just saying we should have a little bit of grace for them. And probably look in the mirror a little harder at ourselves because somehow we tend to even repeat their sins after having the entire story to consult. <laughs> and even though we have the whole counsel of the word of God, we still get stuck in this tendency to try to blend our own special brew of relating to God. Do we not? Am I alone in that? Am I the only one that can slip into trying to blend in man-made tendencies and traditions into what it is God has given us in the covenant of grace? I think we all have that tendency. Sometimes we struggle just like the Pharisees, and we still believe that for God to love us, we have to perform to a certain level of expectations. This is insulting to Jesus, who died in our place to show us that that wasn't true. He died for you before you did anything good or bad, and you won't get him to love you any more by being good or any less by being bad. Sadly, anytime you try to work to earn God's love, you move farther away from him rather than closer to him. Do you see that, dear one? I need you to see that. It's tragic. Anytime you get wrapped up trying to work to appease God, to earn his love, to get closer to him, to try to be better, to prove to him you're worthy. Anytime you try that, what you think is getting you closer to him is actually moving you farther away. Because that's not the way he relates to us. He relates to us through mercy and grace. He invites us to come close to him, not because of what we could ever pull off, but because of what Jesus already did. So please shed those clothes, those old garments, those nasty, tattered rags that our righteousness is. Clothe yourself in the righteousness that comes in Christ alone. I'd invite you to that today. Whether you put faith in Christ for salvation or not, whether you're somebody who's already believed on Christ or you've never understood that that's what it was all about, I invite you today. Shed those tattered rags of works righteousness. 
and clothe yourself in the beautiful glory that only comes in trust in Jesus. He did what we could not do. He was perfect, which is what was required for redemption to be had. And he did it. And he offers us to take part in it. I hope your silence is deep contemplation of his goodness as opposed to a lack of excitement about that because there's nothing more beautiful than that invitation right there. God loves you right now. He proved it at the cross. Will you believe that? That is the only way you will not strive and struggle in condemnation. We don't obey God so he will love us. We obey God because he does love us. Sometimes what this looks like, also the way that we can sin in this way, the way that we can try to mix new wine and old wineskins, is it's trying to pour the new wine of a life with Jesus into an old wineskin of rebellion and sinful behaviors, and naively thinking that the two will coexist. They can't and they won't. And we are all in process of being sanctified, so I'm not in any way saying that the Christian needs to be perfect. Please understand that. But if you believe that you belong to Jesus but refuse to repent and turn from certain sins or environments that lead you to sin, you're going to be like new wine in an old wineskin. That thing's going to blow up and it's going to make a mess. Please open your heart and your life to the inspection and instruction of the Holy Spirit. When he convicts you of something, stop. Immediately, don't think about it anymore. The Holy Spirit tells you to stop, stop right now. If you're struggling, then please pray and get other brothers and sisters to pray with you. That's what real accountability and community is about. You should have that. People that if you're struggling, if you know the Holy Spirit has told you to stop, but you've struggled again and again, you've continually felt tempted in the same way, your greatest desire is to obey Jesus, but you're struggling to do that. Sometimes what helps is to bring in reinforcements. Hey, I'm struggling with this. I want to be open with you. I want to live in the light as he is in the light. Let me tell you about this. Please pray with me about it. Oftentimes it is that simple. It is that difference between defeating sin and not. It's when the devil's able to get us to stay isolated thinking that uh, there's shame in walking in the light where he can keep us trapped and bound by those sins. Amen? Amen. If you're struggling, please pray. Get other brothers and sisters involved. And in doing so, experience the unmatched joy of a life in obedience to King Jesus. And I mean that. My words are very intentional. Unmatched joy. You can find other quasi-sources of happiness in this life, but you, human, you were made for God's presence. You were made for relationship with him. And anything else will be false, and it will fall short of what obedience to God will bring in the, in the form and source of joy. Until you're convinced of that, you will continue to struggle. That's why I try to put it in front of you every week in one way or another. Verse 39 is interesting. It's um, particular to Luke. You will not see it in the other Gospels that talk about this parable. You will not see verse 39. Um, and it says, And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new. For he says, The old is good enough. There's also debate, of course, on what Jesus means here. I think what he's doing is pointing out the sinful tendency that humans have to cling to what we know, to cling to what is old because it's comfortable. 
Uh, and I think you need to know this about yourself in your own life. You will tend to cling to forms that are comfortable. You will tend to cling to patterns that you find soothing because you know them. And you will be typically resistant to change because most of the time that will cause you to lean on God, uh, which is not always comfortable. Most of the time we like to be in cruise control and just do stuff that we feel like we can handle. I'm just telling you that a life with God is going to be him consistently calling you into um, a place where you're going to have to trust him. Much like calling Peter out of the boat. That was not within Peter's realm of expertise. Right? Guy was a fisherman, but not so good at walking on water. If he was going to pull that off, it was going to be completely and totally because Jesus was helping him. And I would just encourage you, if you've got everything under control in your life, there's nowhere where you are stretched beyond your own natural capabilities, you've probably sold yourself short on what God's called you to do. Okay? I say that because I love you. Um, we need to know that personally, but I think it's important also that we know that as a church. And so I want to make a distinction, and I want to prepare us for thinking correctly about change as an organization and change as a church. Uh, I think it's important to make a distinction between our methods and the message. Our message is never going to change, ever, never. It does not matter how offensive the culture decides. The exclusivity of Christ is. It does not matter who decides that Saying that Jesus is the only way to heaven is hate speech. That will be the only way we ever describe the truth about Christ because it is the truth. Our message will not change. Where we need to be pliable, where we need to be like a new wineskin is in our methods. And oftentimes we put method and message on the same level and that's sinful. The gospel will not change. It has not changed and it's not going to. The gospel today will be the same gospel we rejoice over for eternity. Amen. But the method with which we reach the culture we're called to, those might change. For example, there were people that as technology began to change and churches started to put, started to, I really enunciated that well, that it started to. So what happened, like uh, projector screens, for example, um, and, and like, you know, interestingly enough, things like overhead projectors, there was resistance oftentimes uh, from some of those who, they were used to a, a book in the little pocket behind the pew, and that's where the words for the songs are. And that's the way we've always done it. And so I can't imagine that God would do this differently where you would put the book down and everybody's attention would be focused towards an evil demonic thing like a projector screen. Do you see that? Do you see why that's an issue, those types of attitudes? And we would be naive to think that we've reached the crest of change in technology in, uh, in and amongst God's people. We need to be pliable. And even for us specifically, uh, here at Love City, I know it's not obvious tonight because of the Labor Day holiday, but we have grown much during the summer. Um, and so what that's requiring us to do is to flex and change and move and adjust things. And as God continues to um, help us accomplish our vision, which is people meeting Jesus, uh, the hope is that we do grow. We are not numerically focused. That's not our big deal. We don't get in um, meetings with leaders and say, okay, how do we grow this church? Because then, you know, we'll be able to build a big tower of Babel to ourselves and say, yay, we've got a thousand folks. We don't really care so much about that, but here's what I do care about, that people meet Jesus. And so if people meet Jesus and people are growing as disciples of Christ, what they're going to do is they're going to talk about Jesus in places like their work and where they go to school and when their family gets together. Like the gospel of God is just going to be on their lips because they're going to be excited about it because they are authentically following the master 
of whom there's, there's no one else that's more exciting to be following, right? And so it's going to come up, and so people are going to meet Jesus, and we are going to continue to grow. And so we need to understand that that's true. And we need to understand that that's going to change certain things. The systems that we use to try to organize and work, um, those are going to change. The, certain things the way we do. And, and so we can choose individually and all together to, to act one of two ways. We can be an old wineskin that refuses to stretch to accommodate those that are coming to meet Jesus because I have certain preferences about the way things are done. And I like it done this way. Well, I, I don't want to be the stumbling block in the way of people meeting Jesus. I don't know about you, but that's kind of the last thing I would ever hope to be true of me in my life. Right? At least give me a nod on that one to let me know you're still with me. All right? I know you're still reeling from me hammering you about alcohol, but um, we're talking about something different now, okay? Um, we have to be willing to stretch, be pliable, be flexible. Um, the more people you add, the more complication you add. That is absolutely true. But you also add joy. You add more varied gifts you add more people that, some of, there's value just in brand new people meeting Jesus and those of us that have gotten old and crusty in our faith, seeing how excited they are to know that they're not going to go to hell now and they have hope in Christ for eternity. Because some of us have been doing this too long and that can become normative to us. Some of us have been doing this too long and the fact that Jesus saved us from our sins and what we deserved was death and hell, like that's just become common to us. And so it's good for us to just be around people that are still so pumped about that. Like they've not gotten over the fact that Jesus would let them be in this deal. Right? It's good for you to be around someone like that. And it's good for you, as old and crusty as you may get in your faith, to keep trying to reach back to that kind of excitement. Because this thing doesn't get old. And eternity is going to be a super bummer for you if you're already over it. Like, you know what? Like, I've been a Christian a long time. I get it. Yay, I'm saved by grace through faith. Whoopity do. And you're just kind of, oh, I'm settled into this thing. I go to church because I think, you know, that kind of satiates my conscience. Eternity, if you make it with that attitude, is going to be a super bummer for you. Because what we're going to do for eternity is celebrate the simple beauty of the gospel. That humankind was condemned to hell, but Jesus broke into history and made a way that that wouldn't be true anymore. You ready to sing and celebrate that for eternity? Because that's what you're going to do. So you better get on that train. I'm back. I think I might have like popped a rib head out on that one because there's, yeah, that's good. All right. Our message is never going to change. Our methods will. I need you to know that. And I need you to not be a sourpuss about it. I need you to be excited that if things are changing, it's because we're either anticipating growth or we're catching up to growth. Today, changes that we're going through, methods that are changing is we're catching up to growth. Okay? Um, so... If there's like complication that happens or frustration in the midst of that, I need you to just be a new wineskin and stretch and be pliable, okay? And don't be a doofus about it, all right? I love you. Don't be an old wineskin. Don't be, I mean, don't be the wet blanket on the Jesus parade, okay? <laughs> be horrible to be that person. Don't be that person. Guys, I don't, I don't know what all God's going to do with Love City. I, I don't. I don't think, I think he wisely hasn't let me see the full picture because I'd probably run. Because um, I, I, uh, I constantly have to deal with feeling underqualified and overwhelmed. And so I think Jesus lets me see just enough to not freak me out. But we're not done yet, okay? We're not done with people meeting Jesus. It's going to be a lot more, okay? So I need you to be a new wineskin in that respect.
We're going to keep doing this as long as there's breath in our lungs, and we're going to keep figuring out new and innovative ways to get the beautiful gospel, the, the crown jewel of our faith, to get that message to as many people as possible. And the methods in which we do that are going to have to change, they're going to flex, they're going to, they're going to move, and we've got, we got to continue to be creative because this culture around us is in flux. It's always moving. Their ideas are changing. The way they perceive God and his people is changing, and so we have to be willing to adapt to that and work with it. You know, and, and if what we care most about is not our convenience, but people meeting Jesus, then we'll be willing to do that. <clears throat> um, I was talking to one of our leaders recently, and, and one of those points of frustration kind of happened because of a lack of communication. It was totally my fault. And so I called them, and um, I wanted to read you just kind of the paraphrase of what they said, because I was calling to say, look, I dropped the ball on communicating this to you, and so something changed, and really they should have had input on it, but like, um, it didn't happen that way because I blew it. So, um, but I was calling to just say I'm sorry about that and work on fixing it. And they they were like, as soon as they realized that's what I was doing, they're like, hold on, hold on, hold on, stop, and and said something like this to me: As we grow and uh, systems and processes and other things change, uh, I don't ever want to be frustrated or only think about how that affects me. I want to rejoice that we need to change to accommodate growth because people are meeting Jesus. And so one of your leaders here said to me, when I definitely blew it, and they could have been frustrated with me and been um, totally justified in doing so, that was their attitude. And so I got off the phone and cried because I was so thankful. I'm a big baby. Um, but I just, I'm really grateful for gospel-centered people that love Jesus more than themselves and people that um, are willing to... <clears throat> Leave room for us to figure this out as God continues to bless us and as God continues to draw people to himself. Uh, I'm, I, you know, I'm just still really excited to be in the game. I don't know. I hope you are too. Like, I just, I'm so aware of how unwilling um, I would have been to let a guy like me in <laughs> and how underqualified I am. So I'm, I'm thankful. Let's not do what the scriptures say ever and look today's past uh, wishing for them and, and kind of declaring that those were better. Let's look forward to what it is Jesus is doing. Let's not, let's not say the old wine, the old wine was better and, and I'll only be happy with that, but to see that God is growing us and changing us and moving us forward. Um, I want to read this quote to you from <clears throat> a man named F.B. Meyer. He was a British pastor from the 1870s. He said, let us not cling to the broken bottle skins of the past, whether they be outworn ceremonies, creeds, or formulations of truth. Let the ferment of each great religious movement and new era express itself in its own way. We must not encourage the ill-judged speed of those who want to force the pace and fling away the bottle skins before they are done with. But if the bottle skins have evidently served their purpose and lie discarded on the ground, that will not affect the vintage which is reddening on the hills. Go and pick the fruit God is giving you. Place it carefully in baskets. And let it have new skins. May we be a people that would be new wineskins, ready to receive the beautiful truth of the gospel of grace and not quench it with our sinful or religious tendencies. May we be a people who not only receive gladly the new wine of salvation and hope by grace through faith in Christ, but may we be a people who excitedly Offer it to everyone possible. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, we love you. 
And Lord, um, <clears throat> I'm thankful. I'm thankful for the parables in general. I'm thankful, Lord Jesus, that you taught the way you did, that for those that love you, it brings clarity to the deep things you're teaching. It also causes us to press in and look for that meaning. And I, I, I enjoy that search. I enjoy pressing to you, Lord. I enjoy needing to lean on your Holy Spirit to understand all of what you're saying. And so thank you for that. Thank you you did not just leave us your word, but you've also sent your Holy Spirit as our helper that we may understand it. Who am I to understand the words of God? God Almighty. And yet you see fit to let me in. Thank you for that. Lord God, I pray for this church. I ask God that you would help every single one of us to be new wineskins in our thinking and in our attitudes, whether that be at home, in our workplaces, at school, but especially, Lord, here as we are on mission together. We are on mission in all of those places, and that's why it's important that we're a new wineskin there as well. But God, as we work together here, as we work together, Lord, uh, trying to figure out systems and, and procedures and the, the ways that would be most effective to manage the growth you're sending us to, to help organize and really effectively disciple the people that are meeting you, Lord. Help us to be pliable and flexible. Help us not to be rigid or set in our ways. Help us not to be sinful and prideful, which is really our tendency, Lord. Please, I, I beg you, me first, Lord. Please don't ever let me be a stumbling block to what it is you want to do. I, I don't want to have any <clears throat> ideas that are old that would hold you back, Lord. Please don't let me ever cast away old thoughts that need to stay the traditions that are right, the things that should never change. I understand that those are there. And God, may we never, ever, ever, ever let the message be changed. Please, Lord, help us. Please galvanize us in this, God. Strengthen our backs, Lord, that no matter how hard it is to toil in the soil of truth, that we would do it joyfully. Please don't ever let us back away. We are going to need your strength to do that. It's becoming ever and increasingly difficult, Lord to stand and to preach the word rightly, to say what your Bible really says. But God, I don't ever want to back down from that. I don't care what it costs. I don't care. Lord, I just want to honor you and bring you glory every day of my life. Lord, may that be the heart cry for every person at Love City Church, that they would want every part of their life to declare your greatness. You're worthy of that and nothing less. Please have your way among us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.